Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Artificial intelligence is becoming more common every year with applications and industries ranging from medicine to transportation to the service sector. Many people see this technology as a means of finally escaping the disappointing productivity growth of the past few decades. Others are more pessimistic, anticipating massive job loss and disruption. But no matter what, policymakers need to be aware of both the potential benefits and risks involved with this technology. I'll be discussing these questions and issues today with Daryl West. Daryl is the Vice President and Director of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution, where he's also a Senior Fellow at the Center for Technology Innovation. And he's the co-author, along with John Allen, of Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. Daryl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jim. Nice to be with you. I know that people who are in the tech industry or Silicon Valley, when journalists write about artificial intelligence, they hate when they use the phrase artificial intelligence because they're like, there are different kinds. It is, there, then there are so many different kinds or different strengths and different, you know, they're advanced, less advanced. That you're really not telling anybody anything. So first of all, when you're talking about artificial intelligence, what do you mean exactly? Our definition of AI is automated software that analyzes data, text, or images and makes intelligent decisions based on that analysis. So the critical components are really the intelligence, the learning, and the adaptability. So it's not like conventional software that's mechanistic or can do one thing. It's software that can really learn as it goes along and adapt to changing circumstances. And you hear phrases like machine learning, deep learning. Is this is this what we're talking about or are those just aspects of what we're talking about? Those are aspects of what we're talking about. Uh, machine learning has broad applicability, particularly in regard to text analysis. So there are a lot of people who have developed uh, sophisticated algorithms to really analyze text, uh, kind of figure out the meaning of uh, different types of uh, documents. And there have been uh, real advances in that area. For example, in the COVID area, there are now uh, machine learning algorithms that are analyzing the scientific literature to help develop new drugs and new vaccines. It turns out machines actually are very good at reading things and analyzing it uh, and is much more efficient than the way humans can do it. One way to think of AI is a sort of super research assistant that can do what people can do, but more efficiently, such as by going through data quickly and finding things that a human may never find. So is this a labor-saving technology, or does it supplement what humans can do by doing a lot faster? I mean, I like your metaphor of the super RA, because I think right now a lot of AI falls in that category. I mean, eventually it's going to move beyond that and become something that can do activities better than humans. But a lot of it right now is single purpose. It can basically analyze discrete information and draw conclusions uh, based on that. Uh, for example, in the finance area, there's a lot of AI uh, engaged in fraud detection. So basically, it just looks at a bunch of financial transactions, identifies the outliers and the abnormalities, and re refers them to humans uh, to uh, inspect for uh, further uh, information. So those types of applications 
are, are doing it faster and uh, perhaps more comprehensively, uh, but it's a pretty limited kind of application. Eventually, we will get to, to the point where the AI is more multifaceted and much more powerful, uh, but those types of applications are still a ways off. Is AI doing important things in the economy right now, or are they still pretty incremental, uh, both in sort of absolute terms, or at least in terms of where it will be in in 10 years? Because boy, oh boy, we sort of talk a lot about it, and, it's seen, and, and a lot of newspaper articles about it, and some people might think that it's a huge component of what's going on. Is it? And how does that compare to sort of where we might be a decade from now? Well, it's certainly being deployed in a lot of different areas. I mean, in our uh, Turning Point uh, book, it ranges from education and healthcare to uh, e-commerce, transportation, and national defense, and a lot of other areas as well. But I think, as you point out, at this point, it's more incremental as opposed to transformational uh, in the sense that it can focus on discrete tasks and do them very well. So, for example, when you go to an e-commerce uh, site, you're looking at a number of items, you will see a pop-up box saying, hey, you might be interested in the following products. That is the result of an AI uh, application that is basically uh, uh, noted what you have purchased, but also what you have looked at and made judgments on what you might be interested in. And some companies claim that up to a third of their sales now are based on the product recommendations. So basically, the AI has advanced to the point where sometimes it knows what you want to purchase before you do. The dream is for AI to become a general purpose technology comparable to past innovations like electrification and the internal combustion engine, where AI is applied everywhere. But then you have people like Robert Gordon, who's been on this podcast, who think it'll just be an incremental improvement. Can it be more than that? It can be more, and eventually it will be more. But he is certainly correct that there's a lot of hype around AI and a lot of over-promising and under-delivering. So we do have to be cautious in terms of what the capabilities are uh, right now. Uh, but you know, we're seeing AI in conjunction with other things like, I mean, there are retail outlets now that are fully automated. They basically combine uh, AI with uh, computer vision. Uh, in the military area, there uh, is something called uh, uh, preventive maintenance uh, that basically uses sensors embedded on military equipment uh, to determine when a repair should be made before the equipment actually breaks down. So that certainly is very helpful, but they tend to be discrete tasks of that sort. The general purpose application, and certainly the Hollywood vision of the Terminator as the ultimate manifest manifestation of that is a long ways off. I mean, we're not anywhere as close to that right now. All right, there's a huge gap between uh, super intelligent, sentient, AI and AI that can help serve us more accurate ads or product recommendations. Obviously, a massive gap between those two things. Uh, but I want to spend a minute or two just looking forward just a little bit. Uh, something like healthcare, massive chunk of the American economy. What what can AI do in that sector? Well, uh, certainly in the machine learning area, being able to read the scientific literature and help to come up with uh, 
chemical compounds that can be used in drug discovery. Uh, that's already uh, being used. And so that yeah. certainly is helpful. Uh, in the COVID area, kind of advanced processing combined with data analytics has been very helpful just in terms of tracking the spread of the disease and uh, models that are anticipating uh, you know, future infection rates and levels of fatalities uh, that will be associated uh, with that. So there certainly are many ways that it's being used, often in conjunction with other uh, things. Uh, so there are a lot of electronic devices that can monitor your vital signs, take the blood pressure, read uh, blue uh, blood uh, glucose uh, levels, electronically transmit that information to a doctor's office, and then the doctor can be proactive in determining when a problem is starting to develop, as opposed to our current model, which is very reactive, uh, which is you get sick and then you go to the doctor. Ideally, if we had an advanced warning system uh, that would anticipate that you're starting to get sick and then uh, facilitate an early intervention, uh, that would be uh, much more helpful and likely to be uh, more effective. So I think those are the types of th things that I'm seeing right now. Yeah. The, thing, the things you uh, have uh, mentioned are areas where there's a lot of human activity. They're not, these aren't factories and boosting productivity has been super hard. We mentioned you know, area like maybe retail or particularly healthcare. How about education? Another trying to increase the productivity and effectiveness of our education system. What's the role of AI there that you can see happening both now and sort of in the near to medium term? I mean, there the key thing is using technology to personalize the learning experience because we know people learn in different ways and at different paces. And the problem with education now is, it, you know, kind of treats students at as a uniform mass and you, you know you have 20 or 25 uh, individuals in a classroom when we still were uh, meeting in uh, uh, purpose uh, in person and so it was hard to really uh, kind of tailor the education to the individual student technology allows us to do that you can have real-time assessment with pop-up uh, quizzes you can kind of identify uh, who has already mastered the material and therefore give them more material those who need more time Perhaps they need more repetition and therefore uh, need uh, some additional assistance. So I think the chief uh, benefit is really in the tailoring and the personalizing of that educational experience. Uh, and uh, that uh, probably is the, the best benefit that we can get at this point. Maybe the most obvious application we've been talking about recent years is self-driving cars and the role of AI there. Um, a lot of hype uh, about that technology and that application. Where do you see, where do you think things stand? Um, I mean, there've been predictions that there'd be millions of cars on the road by now that were self-driving. That's not the case. Uh, there are a few in Arizona uh, fairly recently, but it's a long way from some, from some of the predictions. So uh, do you think that's a technology that will eventually pay off and be really transformative uh, for American life? I do think that technology is going to uh, pay off, uh, and it, it's not that far away because the technology is getting uh, better. But you're right. It was only a couple years ago where people were telling us, by 2020, there are going to be lots of autonomous uh, vehicles on the road. Now, we still have 15 days for this prediction to uh, <laughs> come true, but as of right now, uh, we certainly- Are you about to make a bold call? 
Are you about to make a bold prediction that we're going to have a flood <laughs> just coming off the off-ramps on the on-ramps onto the freeway? Uh, not likely to uh, happen uh, right away. But I do think uh, that that technology is improving. It's probably going to get deployed less in the consumer car market than in some specialty areas. So certainly uh, the ride-sharing services and the taxi services are likely to have autonomous vehicles before it becomes a consumer item. Uh, the long-distance truck driving uh, is an area where uh, the business model uh, works uh, pretty well. The problem with the driving experience is the technology up to this point is actually very good on 90% of the circumstances that you would encounter on the road. But it's that last 10%, like the unusual things, that has been very hard for the software designers uh, to really uh, figure out. So I think what is likely to be the case is we may end up with uh, dedicated areas ex explicitly, explicitly for autonomous uh, vehicles, like a taxi route, uh, almost like kind of a, a subway uh, stop uh, that you know goes along an automated uh, track, and uh, you know it's kind of a predetermined uh, set of uh, destinations. Uh, there, the technology is uh, very close to uh, being able to uh, do things like that, and then it will probably uh, broaden uh, out of that. So uh, I think it's going to be a niche area uh, far uh, before it becomes a mass consumer item. Uh, the mass That's consumer <clears throat> item is probably twenty years away. That last ten percent. If I understand right, it's not so much that there's sort of 10, 10 tasks that an autonomous car has to do, and it can do nine, and there's that one final task. It's more like it can do 90%, and that last 10% is like a million different small edge cases, uh, and that's what it has to adjust to. Is that, is that Am I getting that right? That's exactly the problem. I mean, just, you know, think of all the crazy things you see when you're driving down the highway, you know, somebody going the wrong way, a, a, a bicyclist uh, uh, kind of uh, coming against uh, traffic, you know, the integration of pedestrians, uh, bike riders, uh, the scooters, uh, cars and trucks and buses, uh, all basically sharing uh, the same uh, narrow uh, lanes. Uh, that's what makes it complicated. Humans are unpredictable behind the wheel. You know, people will do U-turns and uh, things they're not supposed to do. But, uh, you know, if you want to maintain the uh, safety of your autonomous vehicle, you have to be able to anticipate the crazy things and know how to deal with them. So you're exactly right that, you know, the easy thing is basically driving 65 miles per hour down a straight interstate highway with, you know, no uh, traffic lights. Uh, like, you know, we could actually do that uh, right now. That's a relatively simple autonomous vehicle application. But uh, city driving, downtown driving, uh, urban congestion, like all the things that you it, uh, have uh, on highways other than limited access highways, those are much more complicated. And of course, in D.C., we have traffic circles uh, with uh, inner circles and outer circles. Uh, those are really complicated situations to program. Do you think AI will do more to eliminate jobs? Or we'll do more to create jobs by creating new products and services for people and just generally things for people to do. I imagine all will happen, but where do you think the emphasis is likely to be? I mean, the short run, I think AI is going to augment human performance as opposed to replacing humans. Uh, so I have less concern in the immediate future on the job loss uh, front. 
But as the technology becomes better, then that equation really starts to shift. So eventually, you will see some occupations uh, start to disappear. Uh, we already see it a little bit in terms of uh, the retail sector because there are now fully automated convenience stores with no sales clerks and no cash register. You kind of walk it through the turnstile, use the mobile app, go shopping. You walk out and they automatically charge your credit card or your uh, mobile payment uh, system. So, uh, you know, someone who works in a retail outlet, uh, that, uh, you know, could be a place where there are job losses. The same in terms of finance. Uh, like there's now... AI for wealth management, because it turns out, you know, humans are way too emotional to really be good investors. Technology-based solutions actually are good because they're rational. Uh, they think about the facts. They don't get uh, caught up uh, either in the upside or the downside nearly as much as uh, we do. So the finance area is an area uh, where there could be uh, some job losses. And it's not necessarily just limited to the entry-level professions. Like there now is really good AI that can read x-rays and CAT scans. So even a high-level occupation such as uh, uh, those of radiologists, uh, that is a place where there could be job losses. So we are starting to see some areas where the AI has advanced to the point where it is going to replace uh, humans. But in terms of like massive uh, job losses, I actually don't worry so much about that. And of course, the AI, AI will also create some new jobs, uh, but then there the problem is, will the humans have the skills necessary uh, for those new positions? It seems like economists are more optimistic that we'll be able to find more things for people to do, even as AI leads to some disruption. And meanwhile, a lot of Silicon Valley technologists are worried that there will be massive job loss that requires a solution like universal basic income. Have you noticed this difference in opinion? Uh, absolutely. There is a huge uh, variation in the predictions uh, that people are making there. But what I like to remind people is, you know, like during the Great Recession, it only took a 10% national unemployment rate to create the Tea Party, uh, massive uh, political protest, uh, populism, and then eventually Donald Trump. So it doesn't take a lot of job losses to be disruptive. You know, if you have something even in the 5 to 10% range, that's actually big for a society. So there's some people who predicted 50% job losses. Like, I think that's uh, completely unreasonable. Uh, that's not going to happen. But even if we are at the low end of the predictions in that 5 to 10% range, that's a big, big problem for society. It poses big challenges for public policy in terms of how we deal with that uh, group that is going to be left behind. Yeah, that concerns me because we've already seen a backlash against trade, which not very long ago seemed like a settled, uninteresting issue. So maybe we'll also see a pushback against technology. Do you fear that kind of backlash? I do fear that kind of backlash because right now the job losses, to the extent that they do take place, are likely to be concentrated among entry-level professions where the task is pretty routine and therefore it's easy to uh, develop computer programs uh, that can uh, do exactly the same thing. That is a problem because even if it's a relatively small group who are affected by that, like that's going to be a challenge for those individuals. Like how we keep them in the workforce, uh, clearly there's going to need to be a lot of effort in terms of workforce development. And right now, our workforce development programs aren't very good. They're not very successful at actually giving people the skills and jobs that they uh, need 
uh, for uh, the longer run. So I, I do worry a lot about that particular uh, issue just because uh, those people already are suffering a lot of social and economic uh, problems. Uh, and it doesn't take much to disrupt them in a way that becomes even more problematic than it is already. Yeah, I mean, how confident are you that that is a problem that we can effectively tackle? Um, and I suppose we have the example of sort of the, the China trade shock um, as a sort of a big event that maybe we didn't handle so well. And then we can see what we did wrong. And we can learn from that. Uh, do you think that do you think we have an AI shock that we uh, we are prepared to do a better job either reacting to it or preparing ourselves for it? If we had good governance, I would be completely optimistic about our ability to handle any of the side effects of these technology innovations. But the problem is we don't. And it's not just the United States suffers from poor governance, but you look around the world, it seems like almost every leading country today has big uh, 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 governance problems, either from outright corruption uh, to uh, poor performance in other uh, sorts of ways. And so that's what worries me more in the sense that there are public policy solutions to deal with job losses, with people who need job uh, retraining, uh, with people who need to upskill, you can kind of go down the list of possible problems. But our governance is so poor, I'm not real optimistic about our ability to do the things that need to get done. Uh, and uh, so I don't think that the challenge is coming up with solutions. It's really the political will and the ability and the capacity to actually address the problems that are likely to emerge. Do you think our society is willing to embrace disruption caused by technological change because it will make us better off in the long term? Or will they look to government to shield them from disruption so they don't have to adjust? It seems to me that right now society seems more on the disruption averse side of things. I think that is the case. Uh, and there are a few people who embrace the disruption. There are many more uh, who I believe uh, fear uh, the uh, disruption. But, you know, it on whichever side of that equation you fall, we need to be having uh, local, state, and national conversations about these issues. And certainly when you kind of factor in the issue of geographic disparities and how this issue plays out very differently in various parts of the country, it's like we need to be talking about it now because any of the interventions, whether it's uh, business interventions or government-based uh, interventions, the earlier we start addressing these issues, the easier the solution is. The longer we wait, the harder it's going to be to deal with it. Uh, I may have given talks in a number of different countries on these issues over the last few years. I generally have found many other countries are actually further along in thinking about these issues, recognizing potential problems, and thinking about what are the ways of dealing with them compared to the United States where, you know, we're just still caught up in old debates uh, based on an industrial economy and not fully recognizing we are moving into uh, the transition to a digital economy. There are different types of issues uh, that are raised there uh, as opposed to industrialization, and it's going to require different types of solution. I don't think we're really having those types of conversations right now. And that's one of the reasons we wrote our turning point book to help stimulate a discussion of, of those kinds of issues. Uh, you may not have an answer, but I'll ask anyways. Why, why do you think that's the case? Why do you, why do you uh, 
think that we're not sort of forward looking and thinking about how to embrace these issues. I the, the and I've I've said this story more than once. I remember a speech President Trump gave in Pennsylvania, uh, in front of a bunch of in fr- uh, not a bunch, but in front of a truck, and a big semi truck, beautiful, glistening in the sun. And he was speaking about the about the American trucker, you know how important the American trucker is to the United States. And not once did he mention the threat to trucking jobs caused uh, by autonomous uh, technology. Uh, to me, that's just nicely summed up the fact that we're not really thinking as hard, at least, you know, maybe we'll think more, you know, more hard about it uh, in the next few years. But the, the, just as you've traveled around, why do you think that's the case that we're not sort of thinking about these new issues rather than thinking about a lot of nostalgia about the way things used to be? I mean, I think the example you gave actually helps to answer uh, that question. Poor leadership, uh, poor uh, governance. Our leaders actually are pretty good about diagnosing problems, although people don't agree on uh, the, the diagnosis, but we're actually not nearly as good at thinking about the possible remedies. You know, it's easy to kind of look at a problem and complain about it, and we all spend a lot of time doing that. But I'm finding Americans are not as forward-looking as I think we were as a country in earlier uh, periods. Uh, you know, if you go back to industrialization, like that was a major challenge, uh, and it took decades to kind of work through those issues. Uh, but we did it, and then we ended up in a, a position of world uh, leadership, uh, economically, politically, and uh, militarily. As we're making this transition to a digital economy, it is equally fundamental as what we went through with industrialization a century ago, but we're not really having the conversations in terms of either the nature of the problem or the possible uh, solutions. And so I think it really does come down to uh, a poor uh, leadership and poor uh, governance. Like our political system is just not well set up now to deal with all of the difficult uh, situations in terms of how you handle the large uh, tech uh, platforms, how we preserve cybersecurity. You know, we have foreign intruders who are uh, hacking into our uh, systems now. There's a whole host of technology-related uh, problems, and we're just not doing a very good job addressing them. Uh, my last question could have been my first question because it's a big question. So I'm apologize for asking. Is my last question uh, the uh, you read a lot about the AI race with China. One, uh, are we losing that race? And two, do you like that metaphor of, the, of a race? Well, it is a race, and China is certainly in, investing an extraordinary amount of money. And because of their large uh, population, uh, they do have some uh, natural advantages. And there are ways in which China actually is ahead of us. So, for example, mobile payment uh, systems and kind of other aspects of the transition to a digital economy, uh, they have better products and they have more integrated products. Now, part of it is they don't worry about monopoly power. Like they don't care if there's a single company that is dominating one niche or five niches. In fact, as an authoritarian uh, country, sometimes it may be easier because if there's one company they have to deal with or get information from, they know exactly uh, where to go. But in other respects, sometimes I think people exaggerate the threat because there's a lot of security paranoia within China because of its authoritarian system. And they don't really they're not really set up to be creative and innovative in the same way that 
uh, America is. And I've talked with people there who complain, and these are people in the private sector who complained about all of the government bureaucracy that they were facing, that they were claiming uh, limited uh, innovation. And so, you know, we've talked a little bit about autonomous vehicles. You need high definition maps in order for those uh, vehicles to be able to navigate uh, the streets. China is so worried about internal security that there are things that can't be mapped, like anything close to a military uh, installation, anything that is sensitive from a defense standpoint, anything uh, that uh, is uh, near a major government facility. Like There are big holes in their high-definition maps, which means they have big problems uh, developing uh, autonomous vehicles. So that's just one example where I think an authoritarian system faces disadvantages compared to a democratic system. You know, we have the startup culture, we have great educational institutions, uh, we have people who uh, want to innovate. Uh, uh, so I'm actually more optimistic perhaps than some other people that the United States uh, will do well on a longer term basis. But, you know, we need to invest in our infrastructure. We need to do a workforce development much better than we are uh, right now in order to keep pace uh, with these other countries. My guest has been Daryl West. Daryl, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim.